Well, really appreciate the reading of our text for today by Irene, so thank you for that. You know, so many of these passages throughout the book of Acts are just, they're just fascinating stories. And you can imagine all of those who were part of the unfolding of these stories, you know, years later, sitting around uh, by the fire and explaining the incredible things that happened to them while they were serving the Lord in these early days of the church. And, and what's amazing to me is that we now, because of the scriptures, get to sit in on that conversation. And not only to sit in and hear how things went, but to actually learn from them. And that's our goal uh, today, this morning. So let me uh, pull out a few things that will hopefully increase your comprehension of what was actually happening in that remarkable scene there in Ephesus. And then we'll pull out some lessons from it. So um, here's a map of the city. And you'll look and see in the top left corner is uh, a, a main street there lined with buildings. And the, it comes up from the harbor. And then at the end of that street is this magnificent theater. Probably would seat about 25,000 people in Ephesus during the day uh, in which this story was, uh, was unfolding. And uh, that's where those crowds ended up is in that theater setting right there. Um, so it was pretty rambunctious, pretty intense. Um, like I say, up to 25,000 people could fit in that place. Now, uh, the Temple of Artemis is not on this map. It's actually um, a good distance away, uh, walking distance, but away from the, the city center there. And um, the Temple of Artemis, Artemis is another name for the Greek goddess uh, Diana, the goddess of hunting, daughter of Zeus, um, you know, could morph into various different animals and was known as protector of women in childbirth. Um, this temple to Artemis was actually one of the seven wonders of the world. You can see its magnificence right there, um, twice the size of the Parthenon, for example. Easy to imagine how deeply intertwined with, uh, with Artemis the culture of Ephesus was because they had this right on their doorstep. They were stewarding this incredible temple, which is one of the seven wonders of the world. And so um, it was deeply in intertwined with their cultural and their religious life, their economic life, which is what we see in the text. Um, both the religious and the economic domains are mutually supportive of one another. The craftsmen derive their wealth from creating statues of Artemis, uh, and people would come to Ephesus knowing that this was the center of the worship of Artemis, and so they would want to collect those statues, take them home with them. Uh, and, and you see it's a dynamic that plays itself out in all different cultures, right? Uh, even ours. It's one of the things that we want to explore um, after I kind of work through some of the kind of back then understanding um, to think about how these similar dynamics play themselves out in our culture today. So Demetrius was a silversmith in Ephesus. Uh, a leader of the craftsmen. Um, you'd sort of think of him as, as the union leader of these crafts, craftsmen who were making these statues to Artemis and selling them. Uh, and he hears about the way. Now, uh, if you've been with us in the study of Acts, you know that the way is a term used to describe Christianity. It's actually the first term. Wish we had a little more time to talk about it. It's so interesting to me. It's a, it's a, wonderful, it's a wonderful way to think of, the, of Christianity, the way. So people referred to it as the way, uh, and the way was causing people to question their devotion to Artemis. Um, sales were down on the statues. And Demetrius and his kind were concerned that there would be a continued diminishing of demand for the sales. And uh, so they wanted to do something about it. So Demetrius stirs up the, the whole city, really. He gets the crowds involved um, and stirs them all up. 
And here's where it's clear that Artemis is deep in their hearts. The worship of Artemis is deep in their hearts. Uh, They become enraged and they start crying out, uh, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. For two long hours, they just say the same thing over and over again in the theater. And they drag two of the guys that are associated with the way, they've been with Paul, into the theater. It's, it's mayhem. It's bedlam. And at first, no one can calm them down. Alexander stands up and tries to calm them down, but they just shout him down. Uh, and, then, uh, and some of them, it says, they don't even know why they're there. They're all just in the theater shouting right? It's, it's basically Facebook back in the day. Uh, and so uh, the town clerk finally steps up and shows some remar- re- remarkable crowd management skills. Um, he basically says, look, that temple over there, you saw a picture of it, is, is not under threat, it's, you know, by these, this small group of, of um, people who are ex- teaching the way. Uh, and he says, if you have an actual complaint Um, then the courts are open. You can go to the courts. Otherwise, you're rioting without a cause. Now, um, so much in this is happening and so much to untangle and sort of connect to our current moment. Um, But I want to say this. This is sort of the point of the sermon. Uh, That culturally accepted beliefs, ones we've we often have without even knowing, like the crowd, right? They don't know even why they're in. They're just in the theater. Some of them don't even know why, yelling. These sort of a culturally accepted beliefs can actually keep us from the faith that offers life. These culturally accepted beliefs that, that we take on board can keep us from the faith that offers life. Sometimes we don't even know that we're re- what we're reacting out of on what we're reacting to. Um, and it can be true that people who generally even consider themselves to be Christians can be kept from a deeper walk or growth uh, by absorbing the beliefs of the culture around us. Cultural beliefs are often unconscious. They come in unconsciously. Uh, they're very subterranean, so we just sort of accept them as the way things are deep in our, in our understanding, where we haven't even maybe asked some hard questions. And they're very strong. You see that in the way that the people react to Paul and his companions as they're teaching the way, um, and they've discovered that this could be a threat to both their religious and economic existence. And so they react with this rage and this force, which is very uh, strong and, and powerful. And that tells you that their beliefs are deeply embedded in their souls, in their hearts, in their minds. So the question we want to explore in the time that we have this morning is, how does our current religious landscape keep us from a walk with Jesus or a deeper relationship with Jesus if we already are walking with Jesus? And it's a huge question, so we're just going to sort of take a couple of bites out of it because, um, like I say, it's just too large for us to be comprehensive this morning. But I think if we can look in a kind of a direction and see how this plays itself out, um, that will help us as we approach the question in many different areas of life. So, so what are the prevailing beliefs of our day? That's the first question. And the prevailing religion of our day is what some would refer to as secularity. Now, I, I know that the word secular actually can mean non-religious, but 
the tenets of secularity, of secularism, are in fact beliefs. This is a point we have been looking at over the last many, many weeks in various ways. Beliefs about who we are as human beings, about what the world is, and about where we are going uh, in this world, all those kinds of foundational beliefs um, make up the tenets of secularity. And so it's commonly thought, though, that, that modern people root their views in the, uh, of the world in fact, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, it's not a fact that there is no God, right? Such a position is a belief. It's not a fact that there's no spiritual realm. That's a, that's a belief that one holds. Um, it's not that there are fact people in the world and there are belief people. We're all belief people. So what are the key beliefs of moderns and in our particular context? You know, in Ephesus, the prevailing belief system centered around the Greek gods. And in particular, Artemis held a special place. So what are the tenets of our prevailing secular mindset? And, and like I said, this is obviously a topic that's broad, too broad for one sermon. And of course, there's going to be some variety from person to person. But there are certain themes that are present. And, and I want to share a couple of examples with you. Um, and then I'm going to allude to some of the other themes that we won't get to today, but that we have been talking about over the previous weeks as we've been working our way through the book of Acts. So let's take, for example, uh, one of the core ones, and that is the belief that, um, I'm going to say it this way, this is it, quote unquote. We say, this is it. The world you see is all there is. There's no eternal life beyond the horizon of our existence. Um, you know, there's no spiritual realm beyond what is visible to the eye. Um, and we'll find that as we look through our culture, some people will believe this outright. Some people will be unsure but in the absence of any surety about it, they'll just sort of slip into this belief and they'll live practically in a way that this is it, not thinking about anything beyond the horizon of this life. And then some who would even say that they are Christians um, would be so steeped in the culture that they have a hard time remembering on a daily basis to consider the bigger spiritual picture as they move through their days. I think this is true of many of us Christians. I know that it's true of myself on many occasions where I can end up living almost like a functional atheist, right? I'm moving through life without thinking about the bigger picture and what might be happening beyond what I'm capable of seeing in the present moment. So this belief seeps into the hearts and the minds of all of us who live in our modern context. And if a person believes that this is it, that this is all there is, what we're, what we're experiencing right now, obviously he or she is going to act differently uh, than someone who believes that this life is only the beginning of something eternal. I love what C.S. Lewis said in the Chronicles of Narnia, after the, all the characters have lived their lives and they move into the eternal realm, he describes their reflection back on their entire existence. He said, they realize that their lives in this world were only the, the, the cover and the, the first page of their entire existence. In other words, if you have a, a sense that there's something greater beyond the horizon, something eternal, a, a spiritual realm, if you have a sense of all of that, it's going to shift dramatically the way that you think about your life right now in this moment. 
Um, now, uh, if a person believes that this is it, you know, it's going to shift the way that they think. Um, in some cases, um, this is what happens. A person who believes this is it, this is all we have, will be motivated to seek out as much fulfillment in this life as, as he or she possibly can. And, and that makes logical sense, right? If this is all there is, then I'm going to get as much as I can out of this life. And, and, and my whole conception is around just doing that. I don't have a consideration for something later. So that can take many different forms. Sometimes it takes the form of acquiring material things. We could go in so many directions with this or figuring out how to be as comfortable as possible. Um, just like Demetrius, right? And the craftsmen that were working with Demetrius um, who supported the worship of Artemis, you know, by making these little statues of Artemis that they would be sell and, and make available for people's homes. Um, we have an entire comfort industry, right? built around the idol of comfort. So, so if that is a struggle for us, and, and it's probably a struggle for all of us at some point, right? We live um, in a context and an environment of wealth that is unlike anything that the world has seen in, in history. And so it stands to reason that we would become very attached to the comforts of this life. And so if that is our idol, and I think to some degree it's probably ours, then, you know, a Home Depot or a Target can become our Demetrius, the silversmith. Now, it's complicated because you've got to go there and you have, to, you have to live somewhere and you have to figure things out. But there's a difference between um, making it an idol and, and then using it for, for just the purposes that it was meant. So some take a different approach. Um, they conclude that this is it. Um, some people, in doing so, will be motivated towards goodness. See, there's a certain satisfaction that comes from being good, from, you know, doing the right thing, being known as a good person. And some of us, in light of there being nothing beyond, the belief that there's nothing beyond this world, will just focus our existence around the pursuit of being as good as we can in this life, to doing as many good things as we can before it's all over. We want to die a good person. My sense is that a lot of people come to believe, you know, in this statement, this is it, um, by osmosis. We unconsciously assimilate the belief, the belief into our way of, of thinking without really being aware of its origin and how pervasive it is in our context. It becomes fact to us, and we don't realize that it's actually a belief. Nobody can prove that there's nothing beyond the horizon of this temporal existence. It's a belief, and it's a belief that there is something. We're all operating in the realm of belief. But some of these beliefs can keep us from encountering God. And that's what we're talking about this morning. And they become so entrenched because it's like in the water that we drink and we don't question it. And so then we just uh, assume this is the way things are. And when some idea comes along that threatens our belief, like for example, uh, for those of us or when we all struggle with the idol of comfort, when the biblical calling to take up your cross and to suffer and to sacrifice, sacrifice comes along, we revolt just like the Ephesians revolted against Paul and the teachings against the idol Artemis. 
Why? Because it's threatening something deep within, something that we've become very attached to, something that we have ordered our lives around. Or when the Bible points out that despite our best efforts to be a good person, you know, if we're truly honest and we look back through our life, even in the recent history, um, we see that we've still fallen short of perfection and that we need a Savior. When the Bible comes along and calls out that truth, um, that can be a threat to our very identity because we've built so much, we've constructed so much of our life around proving that we're good enough. So the realization that perhaps we've fallen short can be crushing. And even though it's true of every single one of us, it's why the world's in such a mess as it is, right? Because we're, we're always stepping on each other. We're always living in ways contrary to what was intended for us. So even though it's true, we have a hard time accepting it when it applies to us because we've built our identity around being known as a good person, somebody who does what's right. So this is one of the prevailing beliefs that infects us sort of by osmosis and can keep us from God. Let me mention a second one. The second belief that characterizes our modern secular mindset is this one. It's that I'm in control. I'm in control. And this belief stems from the idea that there's nothing else out there controlling the world and that it's therefore up to us alone to make things happen. And so if that sounds good to you, then you're a good secular humanist, right? So what happened? One of the things that the shift to secular humanism did was remove God from the center and to put humans there. That's what the humanism part is, that we don't need God to order, in order to succeed. And in theory, as Christians, we don't believe that. But the reality is that by osmosis from our culture, we often do end up thinking that we are the center of all things, right? It's sort of a tendency among human beings to begin with because of sin and selfishness. And you find that being at the center, being in control is actually very intoxicating. The serpent discovered this uh, when he tempted Eve to eat the forbidden fruit. And Adam and Eve found this out when they ate. Right? Their eyes were open. And when we, we experience it, when we view our lives like this material possession to use in whatever way we see fit for our own purposes, when we are in control, I'm in control, and we have Demetrius to help us worship the idol of control. He provides us with all kinds of gadgets that make us feel like we're nearly omniscient, Right? We could get on our phone any moment and find out what's happening all across the world. We know everything that's going on in the world, at least a lot more than we used to. And it gives us a sense of feeling bigger than we used to. We used to feel very small. There's so much mystery. Uh, these gadgets enable us to control time, like complicated calendars. I can't believe sometimes how complicated my calendar is. And yet I'm still able to somehow master time in this way. It gives me the sense that I'm actually in control, Right? Or um, what about, uh, uh, you know, the, the ability to be in multiple places at once? I mean, transportation has enabled that. So before the pandemic, you know, the people, we, we just didn't even think about it. We just fly everywhere. We go everywhere and be wherever we needed to be. Well, now we're not doing that so much, but what do we have? Zoom. 
So we can zoom into any context at just about any, any moment. And it gives us the sense that we can almost be everywhere. Now, and the point is not that that's all bad, but it, we have to acknowledge that it does do something to our souls. It has implications for our souls, especially as these tools give us an increasing sense that we are in control. The belief that I'm in control actually ends up keeping me from God. Because if God exists, he's in control, right? That's kind of core to the definition of who God would be. And the more I live in a belief system out of alignment with God, the more it keeps me from God. So if I run around thinking that I'm in control and I have tools that reinforce this, this perception that I'm in control, all, of that, all that's going to do to my soul is that's going to that's prevent me, right? That's a belief framework that's going to prevent me from interacting with God out of a sense of dependency and understanding that I'm not really in control. I mean, one of the blessings, I, I hate to even use that word because there's so much tragedy and pain and loss around the pandemic, but one of the things that come out of, has come out of this is a, an increased sense that we're not in control. And spiritually, that's actually a good thing. So one of the points of the passage is just how tenaciously the culture around us can keep trying, uh, trying to keep us from God. And how often um, it's sort of a thoughtless, you know, uncritical, entrenched, visceral, hanging on. See, the entire city is in the theater yelling, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Because this is something they believe deep to the core of their being. And whenever something comes along to challenge it, you know, the reaction is visceral. It's, it's so entrenched. And some of them don't even know why they're saying it, Luke records. They're just in there along with the crowd saying it, right? There's so much we could explore regarding the cultural beliefs we've absorbed. We could we talk about identity formation, um, the therapeutic view of what's wrong with, with humanity versus a biblical view. We could talk about the role of authenticity in our society. Um, so much we could talk about in line with secularism that we absorb by osmosis without even questioning. And we, we think that we're believing in facts when actually they're just different beliefs. And there's also an entire conversation here about the social construct um, of race that as we've been exploring this over the last months and how we absorb that notion, the, the construct, the, the human construct of race, how we absorb that via osmosis in our culture and how absorbing it can so easily lead us to division when, as we've said over and over, the heart of God is for all peoples. And you see the same dynamic at play. When we critique the sin of racism because it's so entrenched in areas of our society and the way we think about the world, we sometimes meet with this angry response, just like the Ephesians in the theater, because we're, we're attacking something that has, has taken hold in a deep-rooted place in us that we don't want to let go of. So this, this dynamic, which may seem so ancient and strange when we read the story, is actually very present in our world 
today in multiple ways. There's so much here. But the point is this, that the riot in Ephesus is the story of how the forces of culture around us keep us from God, and sometimes tenaciously so. So what do we do? What, 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 what is the response to that? How, how, can we, how can we grasp it and, and, and maybe do things differently? And what I want to explore with that is this question of how we, how we actually know. So one of the underlying questions in Acts 19 is this. How is it that we come to know what we know? This, this is like the question under the question, right? Because so many of the people um, in the theater seem to just have absorbed, you know, these concepts. Um, it's part of the water that they're drinking. And Paul comes along and he challenges that. Um, and there's some, some lessons in there about how we as human beings process and learn and know and come to believe the things that we believe. So I've been encouraging us um, to work at getting out from under the beliefs we may have unconsciously taken on from the culture around us. Okay, that, that's what we're sort of chipping away at. Um, to work at getting out from under the beliefs, whatever they are, there's, there's myriad of them, to get out from under the beliefs we have, may have unconsciously taken on from the culture around us, sort of by osmosis, right? Especially those beliefs that keep us from God. And what we see in the text and the surrounding chapter in Acts 19 is there are environments that are conducive to that work. And there are environments that are not. This is one of the subtexts of the whole chapter, Acts 19. On the one side, you have Paul. So back in Chapter 19, just a few paragraphs before, verses 8 through 10, you've got this scene where Paul leaves the synagogue and he rents out the hall of Tyrannus, um, which is another hall in Ephesus, okay? So it, it wasn't on the map that I showed you. It was actually a little bit closer to, I believe, to um, the temple of Artemis. But what Paul did is he rents out the hall of Tyrannus, okay? And for two years, it says... He reasoned, and it uses that word, he reasoned daily with all the people that came through. Now, Ephesus was an was a urban center, and so all of the people of Asia, that area, which that region was called Asia, they would all come through Ephesus at some point, and they would go uh, to the Hall of Tyrannus, and Paul would spend, John Stott, commentator, estimates that he would probably, given the way that the culture worked, he probably would have been there from like 11 in the morning until 4 p.m. Daily, for two years, discussing, arguing, reasoning with whoever would come through the hall of Tyrannus. It was a public space open to all, right? Kind of like when we stream, we're in having a conversation that's more public than we're, we're gathered in this building. So there was Paul in the hall of Tyrannus uh, openly inviting people to engage in conversation with him about the teaching of Jesus Christ. And he spent hours and hours conversing with people. 
And you can imagine, you know, them going back and forth and then coming back the next day with new questions and the next day with new questions. And by that means, the gospel spread all throughout Asia because of that Hall of Tyrannus sort of environment where people could discuss and debate and dialogue, interact, interact with one another. And I think you see a measure of that in the last part of our passage too, when this amazing town clerk steps up and he reminds him, he says, look, you know, basically, um, you know, uh, if, if you, if you want to bring a lawsuit, you can do that if they've done something. But otherwise, as a community, as a society, as a city, you know, we're, we're a place where people can openly debate and dialogue their beliefs. And, and ultimately, that's what quells the crowd down and, and sends them away. So on the one side, you have this affirmation of discussion and debate and dialogue, right? And then on the other side, you have the crowd, which is led by Demetrius, who chant for two hours, great is Artemis of Ephesians, not allowing anybody to step up in front of the theater uh, until the town clerk comes and have any success in having a conversation. And some of them don't even know why they're there. They're just swept up in the crowd. It's not a discussion. It's a shouting down what you have in the theater. So you have the Hall of Tyrannus, discussion and debate, and you have the theater, the shouting down. And we are seeing the same contrast play itself out in our culture right now. Some are taking the approach of Demetrius and the crowd. Let's just shout, whether it's in person or via social media or wherever. Um, but Paul's way, you know, is, is different than that. And, and, of course, we model ourselves after Paul, who models himself after Christ. And you can see in the life of Christ, the same dynamic. How many times in the Gospels do we have the picture of Jesus sitting down with people to have a discussion and to have a dialogue and to work through? And, and so you've got the same sort of dynamic at play here. Paul is, is picturing one way. And then in the theater, we have this other way. Um, and, and, and here's the thing about it that's so uh, encouraging to me. You know, if, Christ, if the Christian faith is true, if the way that Paul was teaching is actually true, it can handle that kind of dialogue and debate. We don't have to be afraid of discussion and hard questions and dialogue. And in my experience, you know, it's, the, it's that daily reasoning environment where you come together and have a hard conversation and have debate and discussion and, and even some disagreement like the Hall of Tyrannus. That's where lives get changed, right? They're not changed in shouting matches. Shouting accomplishes little or nothing. How many people said, you know, I went onto social media and somebody um, shouted at me and, I, and so now I think differently about the situation, right? Never. That's not how people, people change when they're in an environment where they can express their ideas and they can uh, interact with other people's uh, ideas. All of it, you know, in our context, centered around our focus on the scriptures and Christ, 
Uh, and and it's, it's even having the permission to be wrong sometimes, which is so important. To be able to have that kind of conversation. That's what Paul models, and that's one of the subtexts that's happening. And if you want to ask the question, you know, how do we... How do we get underneath those beliefs that we've just absorbed from the culture that are keeping us from God? And I gave you two examples. How do we get underneath those and all the other ones and get to the real, you know, deeper understanding? Um, the way that's going to happen is by creating environments where people can have these kinds of conversations. You know, um, after last week's sermon, we had a larger than normal question and answer time on Zoom. And as we entered into it, it felt a little bit fragile. But people were venturing out to say things that I think they knew others might disagree with. And, and it, was, it was small and, and, he, and hesitant, hesitating a little bit. But it happened. And I felt this tremendous sort of um, sense of stewardship because that kind of space is so rare in our world right now. And the more that we can create it, I think the more we're going to help people uh, get underneath the beliefs that they maybe have accepted that keep them from, from life, from truth, from, from God. Because I think if we keep peeling back the layers, what we're going to discover is this loving God who, who's waiting for us behind all of the, uh, the, the layers of beliefs and things that we, we, we have uh, uh, absorbed by osmosis that keep us from God. If we get into that conversation, I have so much, I don't need to protect God, right? C.S. Lewis said, he said, you don't protect a lion, you let him out of the cage. And when we debate and discuss, we're letting, we're letting Christ manifest who he really is. And we don't have to protect Jesus, right? We don't have to shout loud, you know, like they did for Artemis. Artemis couldn't protect herself, the God, right? Because just a statue. We don't have to protect God, but we have to create a space where conversation, real, honest, truthful conversation can take place. Um, Jesus had one disciple who was basically what the other Jews around him would have, would have viewed as a sellout, an employee of the Roman Empire. He made his money by serving the Roman Empire. Um, generally speaking, the Jewish people were very upset about the oppression of the Romans and they wanted to overthrow it. So when one of their own would then become a, essentially an employee tax collector for uh, the Roman Empire. It was like being a sellout. His name was Matthew. Um, then there was also uh, with Jesus um, one whose nickname was the Zealot, Simon the Zealot. Now, what does that mean to be a Zealot? A Zealot is somebody who fought tooth and nail against the Roman Empire. Okay? Jesus brought these two together. They were, they were, both of them were part of the twelve. He brought them together and made them roommates, right? We don't want anybody to be kept from God. We want this church to be a place where real wrestling and real questions 
and real discussion can occur. And that's messy. That is messy. And we're not always going to get it right. And we're going to step on toes. And we're going to have to come back. And we're going to have to show grace one to another. So please, somebody uh, emailed about one of the home group meetings this last week where the dialogue got into a place where, you know, in the past, this person would have been very, very upset about what this other person said. And this person's testimony was, I found myself having a grace that I hadn't had towards this person who had a divergent view from mine. And I'll tell you, we're going to need grace to be able to navigate the coming season with whatever you call it, the political heaviness, the, the racial reckoning, um, how, we address, how we deal with the pandemic, right? Because we have different views on what's acceptable and what's right, on how to proceed. Um, and you name it, any other, so many other issues as well. And here's the amazing thing. This is why the church is so important in this whole thing, because Jesus went to the cross to die for our sins and to lavish upon us grace. And because he was perfect in his sacrifice, the well of his grace is, is without end. And so we have this, the resource of grace to be able to lavish upon one another. And it's a grace that we don't have to fire up or will into existence in and of our own strength. It's a grace that comes from the outside. It's a divine grace. And when we are at our limit and our capacity, we can call upon God to give us the grace we would not otherwise have to share with one another. That's a powerful tool. It's something that we desperately need to be able to have the kind, to create the kind of environment where people can truly grow and change and explore and be transformed by the truth. So church, can we continue to, re to commit ourselves to creating that kind of environment? We can't do it in our own strength. We need Jesus. And thank God he's there for us.